Good evening. I'm Judy Cooper. I'm the coordinator of public programs here at the library, and we're delighted to see so many of you here this evening. Um, and I got my pages in the wrong order here. Um, throughout the year, the Pratt Library's Writers Live series presents some 100 authors and writers reading from and talking about their books. And tonight, we're honored to welcome Ambassador Peter Thompson for the finale, the final Writer's Life program of 2011. Then I can rest for a few weeks. <laughs> um, we're planning an exciting schedule of events for 2012, beginning with PBS NewsHour uh, host Jim Lehrer in January. And there's some flyers on the table back there if you want to pick one up. He'll be here on January 12th. And we hope to see you all back here again often in the new year. Um, I'd like to thank the volunteers from the Hearing and Speech Agency who are providing interpretation for this evening's program, and also to the Ivy Bookshop for being here to sell copies of Ambassador Thompson's book. And a very special thanks to Pat and, Kar and Kayum Karzai, who are responsible for bringing Ambassador Thompson to the Pratt this evening. We really appreciate your support. Thank you. I've asked Kayum Karzai to introduce Ambassador Thompson, his friend. Uh, Mr. Karzai is a former member of uh, the Parliament of Afghanistan, but here in Baltimore, we know him as a very active community leader and friend of the city, and as the owner of three of the most popular Baltimore restaurants, three of my favorites. <laughs> so I'm going to be at the helm on tomorrow night, as a matter of fact. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Uh, uh, first, uh, lots of thanks to the Pratt Library, with special thanks to Judy Cooper for allowing us to use uh, their venue. We thank you. We, we'd like to thank Ivy Books and uh, Greg for assisting. Lots of thanks to all of you, friends, for supporting Afghanistan and for being here. And uh, of course, special thanks to Ambassador Peter Thompson and Mrs. Thompson uh, for coming to share their books with Baltimorean. And, uh, and Patricia and I are privileged to have their friendship for the last 20 years. And I'm glad you're here, Peter. <clears throat> well, Peter has a special place uh, in the politics of Afghanistan. And, and he's a friend of uh, a lot of uh, Afghans. And uh, when Peter was uh, appointed in 1989 is a special envoy for, for uh, President uh, uh, George H.W. Bush uh, to the Afghan resistance uh, against the Soviet invasion. Uh, he came up. Uh, with an extraordinary insight into the Afghan uh, mujahideen in Pakistani politics in Afghanistan. 
And uh, immediately on his arrival, at least for those uh, in the Afghan traditional tribal politics, we noted uh, an enormous change. Uh, that chain was that for the first time uh, in the resistance against the Soviet Union, he recognized the Afghan traditional tribal politics as an important and dynamic nationalistic force to work for, for an end to the Soviet occupation in the fall of the Najib government. <clears throat> For from then, uh, as his book will show in uh, great detail, his book, The Wars of uh, Afghanistan, uh, that he is a, a key, US, uh, key U.S. diplomat and otherwise is a policy advocate helped the rise of the Afghan traditional politics, is a formidable counterforce to the emergence of religious extremism and terrorism in the region uh, that has been uh, influenced to a uh, dangerous level by the regional Pakistani politics. And obviously everybody knows as to what happened from then to the 9-11 and what is happening now. So uh, for Afghans, uh, Ambassador Peter Thompson is a brave, in a special person, and he was—he has done a lot of good for America, for Afghanistan, and actually for the whole of humanity. And at that time, it was not very easy uh, to change some of the setup uh, that was put together in the Pakistani capital of Islamabad, that was keen uh, to uh, uh, to assist uh, extremism and to influence Afghanistan and the sovereignty of Afghanistan for, for, forever. <clears throat> it is uh, my privilege to introduce our good friend, <clears throat> Ambassador Peter Thompson. Thank you very much, my friend Kayum Karzai and Pat Karzai. And Fozia is here someplace in the audience, too. Uh, uh, where are you? Uh, yeah, could you stand up so everybody can see you? It's Kayum's sister, and many of you probably know Fozia. I'd like to also thank uh, uh, Judy Cooper, as uh, as you did, Kayum, and the Pratt Library for hosting this book event on the wars of Afghanistan. This is such a magnificent library. I mean, this room is magnificent. Every great city has to have a great library, and we can see in this building and in this room and other rooms that this is indeed uh, a, a great city uh, which carries on a tradition of learning. Kayum and Pat, as Kayum mentioned, are, are old and dear friends. I would uh, set our friendship back uh, to 27 years. Um, uh, Kayum and myself, after I retired uh, in 1998, uh, we spent a lot of times, uh, time going around Washington, knocking on doors in Congress and in the executive branch, trying to shake people's shoulders and get them interested in Afghanistan. At that time, we were outsourcing our Afghan policy to Pakistan, which must have been one of the 
biggest diplomatic blunders in U.S. history. I go into this in the, in the book. Uh, and we ended up with 9-11 uh, and all, uh, many of the problems we have uh, today. But we tried to draw attention to Afghanistan and to, in these conversations, as Kayum said, uh, encourage them to look at the great majority uh, tribal impulse in Afghanistan is something that uh, is in U.S. interest, um, and I'll go into that later. Unfortunately, uh, we did have some accomplishments during that period, but we had no breakthroughs, and 9-11 and occurred. Uh, and since then, Kayum has been extraordinarily busy. He just flew in a, again uh, yesterday across a number of continents uh, after having uh, helped organize a 2,000-member Loya Jirga Grand Council of tribal leaders, uh, Maliks, and, and religious leaders in, in Afghanistan to approve the uh, U.S.-Afghan uh, uh, strategic uh, partnership agreement. And Pat has been no less busy. Uh, after 9-11, uh, I was visiting them at their home, and I noticed there was a huge container in the backyard and I asked Pat, what's this for? And she said, well, the U.S. Air Force is going to take this container full of humanitarian goods. Some of those goods might have been uh, orchestrated, put together by others in, in this room, I'm sure, uh, and send it off to uh, uh, Bagram or down to Kandahar for Afghans, shoes, clothing, medical equipment, even a uh, kidney dialysis machine. Somehow Pat was able to have the contacts to, to keep this flow going, and eventually it reached uh, 40 tons. So uh, Pat, our uh, hat, hat low hat is off to you too for all the good work you do. Now let me begin this presentation by saying just a few words about the book, The Wars of Afghanistan, and why I wrote it. I wrote it uh, to fill the knowledge gap that still persist in this country, in the public, in the media, and also inside and outside the government and policymaking uh, policy circles. It's really astounding. Of course, it's a very complex subject. It's not only Afghanistan, it's Pakistan and the whole uh, South Asia region. But it's an area that didn't get much focus in our universities, uh, certainly in the lead up to 9-11. And afterwards, it sort of picked up a bit. but. Uh, it's, it's still, it, there's still this huge gap. And, and so I wrote this uh, huge book, uh, which John Stewart had a, had a ball joking about during, when I was on his show on July 28th. Uh, Craig Karp was a colleague uh, on the frontier with me during this period. He was what the State Department calls my control officer. Uh, he's speaking fluent um, uh, Dari, the uh, Afghan brand of Persian, and, and taking me around. Uh, he could speak to this as, as, as well as I could. But uh, filling that uh, gap is what I attempt to do. Afghan history, its culture, its tribal society, and what has happened um, in Afghanistan, not only uh, recently, but going back into Afghan history. Uh, the um, book ends with a prescription ch chapter on policy for the United States and the coalition it leads in Afghanistan uh, in, in, in the future. Uh, and a lot of people, and somebody in this room mentioned this to me, he said, I just read the first and the last chapter. And the last chapter is kind of the icing on the cake if you want to look at what we should be doing in Afghanistan. But I think the main value of the book is uh, how we got to the present very difficult situation we face in Afghanistan today. 
and what we need to know to still succeed in Afghanistan, which we can do, and I think right now we are doing. It took me eight years to write this, this large book. I had uh, 500 documents uh, declassified. Actually, I submitted over 1,000 that I had accumulated during my career, some of which Craig Karp wrote. And uh, the uh, FOIA folks, Freedom of Information uh, Act folks in the State Department cleared about 500 of them. I also had to clear the whole book through the CIA, the National Security Council, State Department, uh, and eventually was, uh, was able to do that. Part one is uh, plumbing Afghan history, society, and culture. Part two of the book, there's four parts, is um, the Soviet period, the Soviet war, Soviet occupation, and how that roiled Afghan society. Part three, I take the reader along with me in nine chapters as I was special envoy meeting with, as Kayum mentioned, hundreds and hundreds of Mujahideen uh, on the frontier and elsewhere in the world. I made 17 trips to Saudi Arabia to meet with the Saudi intelligence czar, uh, Turkey, Prince Turkey El Faisal. I uh, also met him in, in other uh, capitals. I, uh, in my shuttle diplomacy, I went to Moscow, uh, went to Europe, to Rome to see the king. Uh, the former king of Afghanistan had many parleys with him. Uh, but really, the, um, the, I think the most enjoyable part is with the Afghans, which you'll see, the, the tribal leaders, um, the uh, uh, religious mullahs and Malavis, and the politicians, uh, Af Afghans are very different from other people in the world. Of course, each country is unique, but Afghanistan, having spent 32 years in many countries in the Foreign Service, and I was in the Peace Corps in Nepal before that, is uh, truly uh, unique and, and indeed uh, fascinating. Part four, the last part of the book, is the period leading up to 9-11 and then after 9-11, ending in that uh, policy chapter 25. Today, as the headlines in our newspapers show daily, Afghanistan and Pakistan are two of the most challenging foreign policy issues facing the United States and the Obama administration. As you probably noticed, that since the raid on Osama bin Laden's compound and his elimination on October 2, uh, more attention has shifted to Pakistan and the role it has been playing in in a surreptitious way inside Afghanistan, and also the role that uh, Pakistan and the sanctuaries that it nurtures um, is playing in, in international terrorism. Uh, Faisal Shahzad is a Pakistani-American who planted a bomb in a vehicle in Times Square last year. He was trained in North Waziristan in uh, this tribal agency in one of the sanctuaries and left a car standing there with a bomb, and unfortunately it didn't go, out, go off, and he was um, arrested and spending the rest of his life in a, in a federal penitentiary. Questions long asked inside the U.S. government recently have now gone public. One addresses whether Pakistan is really an ally in Afghanistan and in the uh, struggle against terrorism. Uh, U.S. spokesmen and media reports you've seen have recently focused on the terrorist networks in Pakistan. Uh, there are Pakistani and Afghan uh, groups which the ISI has created over the years, including going back to um, my time as, as Special Envoy. Uh, the two most dangerous Afghan ones which get a lot of attention, of course, are the Quetta Shura with Mullah Omar, 
stationed in Quetta in, in um, western uh, Pakistan along the frontier, and they operate mostly in southern Afghanistan, their tribal groups, and, but also in a swath across, uh, across Afghanistan. Another very notorious uh, group which the ISI created uh, is the Haqqani Network uh, it, that operates out of the center. And another, a third one, which I map out in the book, is uh, Gulbuddin Hekmachar's group in the far northeast, which hasn't gotten that much publicity, but is still active. Uh, back in September, just a couple months ago, it was the 10th anniversary, as you many of you remember, of 9-11. During that month, and this was after and probably in somewhat in retaliation for the Osama bin Laden raid, uh, there was just a rash of attacks, again, in this month uh, of uh, the 10th anniversary of 9-11. Of the, the Haqqani network on September 13th attacked the American embassy in Kabul and also nearby uh, NATO headquarters. Uh, the front page articles on September 21, uh, reported that ta Taliban terrorists had assassinated uh, 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 Baruddin uh, Rabbani, who Karzai had appointed, President Kar Karzai had appointed to head the High Peace Council to negotiate with the uh, Taliban a peace agreement. Uh, instead, a person uh, came, uh, traveled to Kabul, saying he had a message from Mullah Omar on a peace settlement. Uh, he had a bomb under his turban, and when he met with Rabani, uh, he set it off and killed him. Uh, the at attack on American uh, ba American base uh, south of Kabul with a truck bomb followed, fortunately killing no American troops but wounding 77 later that month. We have known for years, even before 9-11, that Pakistan's army, which dominates the Pakistani state, and ISI, Pakistan Army's uh, military intelligence agency, which it operates through in connecting to these terrorist organizations, have been operating these uh, religious terrorist sanctuaries inside Pakistan, near the, uh, near the Afghan border, but also in other parts of Afghanistan. There are uh, now four uh, Pakistani uh, religio-terrorist organizations, which are on the State Department's uh, Foreign Terrorist Organization, FTO, list in which we uh, formally recognize them as terrorist organizations like Hamas and, and others. And we consider them to be dangerous to the United States. One, one of these Pakistani organizations is, is Lashkar-e-Taiba, which uh, attacked Mumbai two years ago and murdered over uh, 200 people, including uh, six Americans. Uh, another one is Hezbollah Mujahideen, which was connected to Osama bin Laden's sanctuary in, in Abbottabad. Jaishi Mohammed is a third one. Uh, and a fourth one is, is Lashkar-e-Jangvi. Lashkar-e-Jangvi is a radical uh, Shia uh, terrorist organization which just committed the um, attacks in uh, Kabul, which killed uh, over 60 uh, Shia in a bombing attack. Today, for the first time in 20 years, American leaders have begun to speak out against the sanctuaries in Pakistan and, and the terrorist network, networks there that the ISI, um, that the ISI uh, fosters. 
In September, then chief of, uh, at the end of September, after the attack on the embassy and, and ISAF headquarters, then chief of staff uh, Michael Mullen told the U.S. Senate committee that the Haqqani network, this was in public, I saw the television clip with, he was surrounded at the witness table by reporters honing in on him with cameras and microphones, and uh, he, he announced that uh, the Haqqani network, quote, acts as a veritable arm of Pakistan's inter-services intelligence agency, the ISI. He charged that there was evidence that the Haqqani network, with ISI support, quote, unquote, quote, attacked the U.S. Embassy and NATO headquarters on September 13th in Kabul, and I've heard that he received this intelligence through SIGINT. You know, we we uh, were able to monitor the uh, phone conversations uh, between the terrorists uh, that were doing the attacking and the Akani Network headquarters back in Kabul, or back in Pakistan. In October, Secretary of State Clinton called on Pakistan to close down its sanctuaries in Pakistan, threatening the region and the world. Also in October, uh, Senator Carl Levin, chairman of the Armed Services Committee, declared in a speech, it is unacceptable for the United States to spend its blood and treasure so that Afghanistan does not once again become a breeding ground for militant Afghan extremists while Pakistan protects terrorists who cross the border to attack us. And at the end of last month, the Pentagon released a, its biannual report to Congress on Afghanistan saying, Quote, safe havens in Pakistan have become the most important external factor sustaining the insurgency in Afghanistan. What does this mean? What does this all tell us in a broader historical framework? Well, I'm going to uh, speak about that for a few minutes. Mainly that Pakistan is the latest player of the great game uh, in Central Asia, which is aimed at dominating the Afghan highland. Afghanistan is very strategically located at the center of, of Central Asia, uh, between uh, major uh, thoroughfares, corridors, uh, to other um, um, parts of Eurasia. And for centuries, outsiders uh, have attempted to dominate it in their, in their uh, struggles against rivals, uh, other great power rivals, uh, or to deny Afghanistan to other great power rivals. Like, for instance, one of the main reasons why Pakistan is, is pursuing the policy that it has been in Afghanistan is to gain strategic depth against India and to, not, to deny the Afghan space to uh, India so that India does not catch uh, Afghanistan in a strategic vice uh, between the two countries. Uh, there's other reasons why the Pakistan army is, is following this, this extremist approach. Uh, one is to keep control of the Pakistani state and to keep at bay the secular democratic parties in, in Pakistan, which it's been able to do. Another is to gobble up the great majority of the uh, annual national budget of Pakistan, which is, does stifling education, health, and, and other, and other uh, institutions besides the uh, military uh, inside Afghanistan. And another objective, which was laid out, in, which I write about in the chapter in the book, uh, Zia's Vision, uh, which Zia concocted was to carve out a place for Pakistan in the Muslim world with a, with a sharp uh, radical extremist uh, edge in Pakistan policy uh, and, and to proceed to uh, build up its own coalition uh, in the broader Muslim world. The great game was a word coined by, was two words coined by an English uh, 
colonial official who was an actor in the great game in the 19th century. Uh, when you play the great game, though, you have the outer circle of powers around Afghanistan, but you also have Afghanistan itself. You could call it the inner circle of the tribal and ethnic mosaic inside the country. And uh, in chapter three of my book, I have maps and charts uh, showing and explaining the different tribes and eth ethnic groups. Uh, it's very hard to uh, control even a part, in fact, it's impossible, even a part of um, unruly Afghanistan filled with unruly Afghans. Uh, Abdul Huck, who is uh, also a friend of ours and Craig's, um, Susan's, uh, he was uh, uh, killed by the Taliban in October 2001 uh, after, uh, after we, went, we began the intervention uh, on October 7th, uh, 2001 inside uh, Afghanistan. Uh, but he had a marvelous sense of humor. And in our first meeting, he tried to convince me to get across to me that uh, foreigners cannot dominate our country. Uh, and anybody that tries to fails. Uh, so don't fall into this trap, Thompson. He gave this anecdote of a merchant in the bazaar, in, in a bazaar in South Asia. And merchants there, for those of you that have traveled in South Asia, you've seen this in other parts of the world too, where they have these little measuring scales where you, they hold up uh, sort of a little chain in the middle and there's a little, little dish on one side, a little dish on the other, where they weigh the product that you're buying and then they put weights in the other side and then they give you your price. Well, he compared Afghans to frogs, Abdul did, and said um, what outsiders try to do is, is put frogs on both scales so they can control and balance them. So they uh, put the frogs on one side, seven or eight of them, and then while they're putting the frogs on the other side, the frogs on the first side start popping off. So the foreigner has to stop and pick up other frogs to fill those spaces. But by that time, the frogs on the other side are hopping off for their own interest. So, and, and each one of them has their own interest, has their own agenda. So it's very difficult to control a milieu like this and a, a, a community or a country like this. So don't, uh, don't try it. Previous innings of the great game have witnessed a pattern of outer circle pressure on Afghanistan. This goes back in recent history to the 18th century. And then when the outer circle pressures recede and there's a period of relaxation of pressure, then the Afghan state always surges forward because Afghans can even, despite their differences uh, at local levels, uh, they can work things out and they have always worked things out if they're able to do this. So in the 17th century, there was a, a contention between the Persian Safavid Empire and the Mughal Empire, Indian Mughal Empire in India, uh, whereby both were attempting to uh, fight over the Afghan state. Then they went in a period of decline, and there was a period of relaxation on the borders. The Russian czarist armies were still uh, going through the Caucasus. They hadn't reached uh, present-day Afghan borders. And in the south, the British, uh, in southern India, the British were still uh, in that location and had not uh, reached North India. So during this period, uh, the Afghans uh, built the modern Afghan state. Uh, uh, Amishad Durrani, the famous uh, Abdali and Papalzai uh, leader, tribal leader, led this tribal kingdom uh, during his life. And he not only established a state, but he established briefly an empire 
which uh, spread into um, the Mashhad area of northern Iran, Bukhara in Central Asia, and then down into northern India. Uh, but internal turmoil in, in, um, over succession in, in Afghanistan after he died, uh, his son carried on, but after that uh, there began to be uh, uh, many civil wars in Afghanistan. But the main problem was that the Russians had overrun Central Asia by that time and were on Afghan's, Afghanistan's border and were beginning to chop off pieces of territory of Af Afghanistan in the north. The British uh, had conquered the Sikhs uh, during the 1840s, and they approached the present-day Afghan borders. Uh, and Afghanistan, uh, was, as an Afghan Amir said, was caught uh, between uh, two forces again, and the period of relaxation had ended. There were two wars that the British fought in the 19th century, and you find it in British lore. They love to write about it, the two Afghan wars. Uh, they had a bloody nose in both of them. Uh, because in both cases there were uprisings, general uprisings in the country. It was not organized centrally as it's not organized centrally today. Uh, there's about 40,000 communities, uh, tribal and ethnic communities in Afghanistan, uh, which operate. many of them operate the way they have for centuries uh, on the basis of tribal codes and customs um, uh, administered by their local uh, councils or, or uh, shuras, uh, that's the Arabic word, or Jirgas, that's the uh, Pashto word. Uh, so the British plunged into Afghanistan to deny it to the Russians um, and uh, ran into a beehive and pulled out. And then they went in again, and eight, that was in, from 1838 to 1842. They invaded a second time in, uh, 18, uh, in 1879, and the same, uh, same uh, sort of um, embroglio uh, occurred and they had to uh, pull out. Uh, there was a third British-Afghan war in 1919 in which the Afghans uh, invaded uh, the Northwest Frontier Agency of, of Britain uh, because they wanted to throw off this yoke of uh, Britain uh, running their foreign policy, which um, the British had managed to do for about 20 years in terms of Afghan foreign policy, but they did not control the country. This period, though, from 1881, at the end of the, the uh, Second Afghan War, up to the Soviet invasion in 1979, preceded by the 1978 uh, communist coup, Afghan communist coup, supported by the Soviets, this roughly 100-year period was a long period of relaxation of tensions. Why was this, uh, why was this allowed? It was allowed because uh, Britain and Russia had a common interest in... Um, combining against the rising power of Imperial Germany in the 1890s in Central Europe. And this anti-German uh, entente, more or less, between the British and the Russians, and sometimes Drew and the French, uh, lasted roughly up till uh, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. So during this period of, of, um, of, of uh, relative uh, peace on the peripheries of Afghanistan, Afghans were able to uh, build uh, their state. There was a great deal of modernization that, that uh, commenced, especially uh, in, at the turn of the uh, 20th century. Uh, it, it was slow from, from that period up till uh, 1929, but I won't go into the history here, it's in the book. But then from 1929 to the Soviet invasion, again preceded by the communist coup, 
there was just a steady and, and really, some would say, um, remarkable progress by Afghanistan, uh, not only in the economic sphere, but also in the political uh, and social sphere. Uh, the the uh, social reforms uh, spread into the education area. It was a secular education system and a network of uh, government schools around the country, uh, some of them with very famous names uh, even today, which Afghans speak of fondly. And the university was a co-ed facility where girls and boys studied together. Uh, and the uh, monarchy at the time, uh, Zahir Shah ruled for most of this period, although his relatives ran the country uh, basically except for 10 years, which I'll get into uh, shortly. Uh, there were social issues in, in gender in other areas. Like, for instance, uh, at, at one famous occasion, the Afghan prime minister um, and his wife sat in a stadium, and his wife was not in Purda, did not have the veil. Uh, this, this caused um, many uprisings in, in parts of the country, but then that passed. And by the uh, late 70s, you had... Um, Afghan women walking around in Kabul in Western clothes, much like you see in Ankara and, and other um, cities uh, in, in, the, in the Muslim world. How many of you have read Kite Runner? Yeah, most of you had. So I'm not going to discuss more of this, but that gives you a picture of, of Afghanistan. As, and this is the Afghanistan that especially middle-aged and older Afghans want to go back to, and also um, many of the younger, younger generation. The Zahir Shah period from 63 to 73, when he was not only monarch but uh, ruler, was called the era of democracy. And in 1964, the Afghans put together a uh, modern constitution based on the French and the American constitutions, and they held two elections in 1965 and 1973. And they, the constitution created a, a Supreme Court and, and there was progress. There were a lot of problems. I don't want to over. I don't want to say this is a Thomas Jefferson uh, democracy. I mean, you still had in the rural areas extreme rural conservatism, but you also had a balance between the center and the regions. In the regions, uh, the, um, the these councils, jirgas, uh, would select a khan to go to sit in parliament or to participate in meetings in Kabul on, um, say, education and to extract resources from the center. Uh, the center accepted the uh, region's autonomy. They did not try to directly govern the regions, uh, but let them continue to govern themselves as they had for, for generations. So this modernization trend was real. It was, it was moving. It was slow. And uh, this is, it was cut off first by the uh, Soviet invasion, uh, and before that, the communist reforms, which I go into, which were uh, erratic and radical and based on Lenin's reforms after 1917, and were a total failure. Um, and then the Taliban came after the Soviet occupation, uh, further pushing uh, Afghanistan into a shatter zone. Now, all of us thought uh, that there was a good chance that there would be an act of self-determination after the Soviets withdrew in 1989. In American policy under Presidents Reagan and Bush, and also Pakistan policy is announced, including by military leaders, Z.L. Huck was a military dictator at the time, was to let the Afghans, after the Soviets leave, choose their own leaders, choose their own way ahead, uh, politically and other ways. Uh, but Pakistan had a uh, surreptitious, duplicitous um, approach. 
Uh, they said that publicly, as they still say it today. We want peace and stability in Afghanistan. We want to see a democracy. We want to see, see them succeed. Uh, whereas at the other layer, uh, at, a, at a surreptitious layer where all of the resources are going, they are following a policy which is designed to put a radical Islamist regime in Kabul. And during my time, it was Gulbuddin Hekmatyar. Later, it was the Taliban. And today, it could be the Haqqani Network or the Taliban. Uh, they argue privately, we have to do this because of India. But actually, on the news hour the other night, this was, uh, I believe it was uh, November, October 24th, I was asked, um, Margaret, this is the Margaret Warner show, that, uh, what about this? And I said, uh, Pakistan, like other neighbors of Afghanistan, has a has major interest in Afghanistan, especially in the security area, as do the other neighbors, vis-a-vis uh, -vis their own security. So this has to be taken into account. But this, this interest, um, right, as the Pakistanis say, does not extend to deciding who rules in Kabul. And especially in terms of US interests, it's not salubrious to our national interest to see any of these that I just mentioned over the last 30 years ruling from Kabul because it will only feed global terrorism as well as uh, terrorism and more bloodshed and wars in the area. So this period of outer circle um, uh, pressures, the relaxation period, uh, in which Afghanistan uh, uh, practiced a classic buffer, buffer sorry, B-U-F-F-E-R, role in Central Asia among its neighbors when the neighbors exercise mutual restraint is something I'm going to get back to at the end of this uh, presentation. Uh, there, Afghanistan has not been the only buffer state. Uh, Austria was one during the Cold War. I can mention three or four others. When uh, in the mid-50s, the United States and the Soviet Union reached agreement to pull out our occupation forces from Austria and to uh, honor Austrian neutrality. And the Austrians uh, made some changes in their uh, legal codes and constitution in which uh, they, were, would be play, they would be a neutral power at the center of uh, Eastern Europe between the Warsaw Pact and NATO. And that worked very well. Austria practiced neutrality very well. Uh, the Soviets um, allowed uh, Austria to go forward, as did the West. Uh, after the Soviet Union collapsed, Austria immediately joined the EU. And, and I think they're in NATO, too. I'm not sure. Um, but during that period, Austria performed a buffer role in, in Central Europe. Now, after uh, Operation Enduring Freedom, that was our intervention in Afghanistan after 9-11, we made a number of mistakes, which I will describe in the book. Out of the best of intentions, uh, we frankly uh, screwed up. Uh, we squandered our momentum when we took our military forces into Iraq and had no strategic economic reconstruction plan or resources to support that plan in Afghanistan when the country was in shambles, and that was the time to do it. We trusted Pakistani, the then Pakistani military dictator, Pervez Musharraf, uh, who told us uh, and announced it publicly that he was with us in the war on terror. But in fact, uh, when we drove the Taliban, and, and it was not only us, we had just several hundred US troops plus CIA types in the country when the Taliban and Al-Qaeda were driven out. 
uh, and a total of 10,000 U.S. troops involved offshore, you know, naval aircraft carriers, pilots, etc. But most of the fighting against the Taliban and al-Qaeda on the ground was done by uh, thousands and thousands of Afghans. And this force of American power and the um, Afghans rising up against the Taliban drove them back into their original sanctuaries in Pakistan from which they had come. And uh, that, that, at, the, at that, in those locations, the ISI secretly, and I described this and documented in the book, secretly revamped, rearmed the Taliban. And by 2005, they began to send, back, send the Taliban back into Afghanistan in large formations to fight not only the Afghans, but the Americans. Now, we were pretty much finished with uh, Iraq at that time in terms of large uh, combat deployments. So how did we react? We did not react by building an Afghan army. Actually, we should have done that from uh, 2002 because the Afghans like to fight their own wars, and they're pretty good at it. Uh, we made it an American war. We started sending American troops, tens and thousands of them, back in huge uh, quantities up until... Uh, 2010, when we reached 98,000 American troops uh, in country, and if you want to call what the military, if you want to include what the military calls enabler troops, it's an additional 3,000 troops uh, in this country. Which, although the feeling for America is still very positive in the country and uh, throughout Afghanistan, a very negative on the Taliban, the Afghans have a history of not liking large foreign formations in their country for a long time, even if they're uh, friendly. Uh, so after 2005, uh, things became very uh, dicey, and we had this continuing buildup, but the Taliban uh, were able to continue coming in in large numbers from Pakistan. Indeed, given the sanctuaries in Pakistan run by ISI, uh, we could send 300,000 troops in a surge to Afghanistan, and it wouldn't establish security. Uh, those sanctuaries have to be closed or the Afghan war will continue. So in 2009, the Obama administration uh, announced a policy of, uh, of the surge, but also giving Afghans greater control over decision-making in their own country. Our mentality up till then, including in the civilian area, among our diplomats and aid workers, as well as the military, was that, hey, we're going to solve this problem, sort of in the initial phases of Vietnam, this happened too. We're going to solve this problem. Uh, we understand it. We know how to fight. We know how to, um, we, we know how to uh, reconstruct. And you will be, to the Afghans, you'll be the supporting side, we'll be the supported side. So uh, that approach uh, was resented by the Afghans, but because there's so many, what, $700 billion coming into the country, uh, it, it went forward. On the Afghan side, they fell into a uh, mentality of dependency. Uh, that is uh, President Karzai and his government. And they let this uh, very difficult situation develop. Um, I have thought, I knew Ahmed Shah Massoud and I knew Abdul Haq. They were both uh, military commanders, very tough guys, fought the Soviets toe to toe. Uh, they would have had another idea about these American buildups and who's in the driver's seat. Uh, but that didn't happen during this period, and uh, we uh, sunk deeper and deeper into uh, the, the uh, quagmire. Now, Hamid Karzai is moving very strongly in the direction of, we have ownership of this country. It's our country, 
and uh, we, you need to support us. You become the supporting pa party, and we're the supported party. And we have reached that conclusion separately, given the bad results that we've suffered in the last 10 years in terms of stabilizing Afghanistan. So now both the Afghan government and the American government are going forward, I think, in the same direction, uh, where we are going to uh, draw down our forces as Afghan forces are, are trained. Uh, the Afghan people want this. They want the Americans to reduce their military, especially military combat presence in Afghanistan, but they also want us to stay. So without, to understand the, where we are today, you have to understand that there's two things going here. The Afghans have, still have a positive outlook on America and what it's trying to do in Afghanistan. Uh, they want us to stay to help them in economic areas and reconstruction areas and training their military and also as a hedge against Pakistan. But they also want us to leave, our military forces especially, to leave, and we have a drastic reduction in our um, civilian and military presence in the country as we put uh, Afghans in the driver's seat. There was a joke in uh, the Kabul bazaars going around, uh, this was about 2003, where uh, the, uh, the, the President Karzai is presented a taxi, uh, sorry, is presented a, I messed up this joke already, I apologize. <laughs> it was given a, a brand new Mercedes by President Bush at that time, President at that time. Uh, and President Bush gave him the keys and he said, now this is your car, you drive it. And, but then President Karzai told President Bush, yes, but it's a taxi. So. <laughs> You're telling me where to go, you know. <laughs> so uh, what is the way ahead to success in Afghanistan? Let me go over these points, and then, and then I'll wrap up, and we'll go to uh, questions. Um, in the wars of Afghanistan and some op-eds I've written about in recent weeks, I've suggested that the United States craft a comprehensive policy, uh, not only a one-year or two-year policy, but look at the whole region and Pakistan and Afghanistan inside it, uh, and then move on the basis of that uh, policy. We did that during the Cold War when we crafted the containment policy, which was a comprehensive policy. It had military instruments, it had intelligence instruments, diplomatic instruments, uh, financial instruments, and with our allies and, and uh, governments of both political parties, we followed it. This is amazing for America when you look back at it through very dangerous periods um, for 40 years until the Soviet Union collapsed. And we did it with our allies, um, Britain, France, Japan, and then China. Uh, we, we lined up China at the end as another power center against the uh, Soviet Union. So this was geostrategic policy. Our, one of our problems in Afghanistan is that the military and the CIA have been in, not only in charge of the tactical side, they've been in charge of the strategic side. And, Often what that means, I don't want to denigrate our military leaders, they're, they're great, and I've known many of them, but they, but they tend to look at things through a military prism, more troops, um, and uh, we need a build up here, we need, we need these weapons there. And the intelligence side, how many uh, terrorists are we gonna round up now in the next month, or what is our goal for the next year? And Pakistani leaders, especially the army, sort of manipulates uh, these uh, desires 
these equities that our military and our intelligence have, and we lose the geostrategic side, and that means we lose the war. I mean, you could have tactical successes, tactical victories, but lose the war strategically. And we've made some big mistakes there, but now um, I, I think we're moving in the right direction, as I said, the right strategic direction, uh, but we need to uh, back up and put together a broader policy uh, like we did uh, for containment, and then uh, execute it. Uh, I, in the book, propose a three-pronged, long-range, comprehensive policy architecture that you'll see in chapter uh, 25. One of the prongs is Afghanistan, what we, sh what we should do in Afghanistan in the next um, 10 years, what we should do vis-a-vis -vis Pakistan in the next 10 years, and what should we do geostrategically uh, in, the, in the big picture. The first, of course, I've already spoken about and that is systematically giving the Afghans responsibility for their own security and nation building based on conditions on the ground. I mean, we, we shouldn't just set this in stone and say this is what we're going to do according to these timelines. We have to, we have to be flexible, uh, but we have to move in that direction. Uh, we will become the uh, supporting party. Uh, Ahmed Shah Massoud once gave a uh, press conference in Europe. He was a great Tajik commander who uh, fought the Soviets, uh, not to a standstill, but he drove them out of much of uh, northern Afghanistan during the Soviet War. Uh, he had a press conference in Europe uh, six months before 9-11, and he was asked by a European correspondent, uh, do you want foreign troops? And he immediately answers, we don't want foreign troops. We don't need foreign troops. We Afghans will fight our own battles. And uh, as I said, they did, did just that uh, during the war against the Soviets. I mean, we provided the wherewithal. The Pakistanis and the Saudis also helped, but they did the fighting and dying. The good news is that, therefore, out of necessity or choice, the Obama administration has created a new strategic uh, approach, that of building Afghan capacity in military, political, and economic areas, and as com conditions permit, uh, pull out American troops, especially American combat troops, but uh, as the training goes on, also uh, other contractors, uh, there's tens of thousands of American contractors in Afghanistan, and aid, aid workers and diplomats. The hour is late, it's not too late. We and our co coalition partners can still succeed in helping Afghans to stabilize their country. We can't do it. No foreign army has ever stabilized Afghanistan. This will serve U.S nationalist interests. It will eliminate the potential Senator Levin spoke of, of Afghanistan once again becoming, becoming a haven for extremism spreading in from Pakistan and extremist terrorism to attack our homeland. Uh, and it will also benefit, benefit American companies and our economy and co economies in the whole Central Asian region. Pakistan and Afghanistan will benefit most of all. But that's not enough, this approach that, that the Obama administration is on, uh, and it's already showing some successes. We must also adopt a tougher policy towards Pakistan. We must engage with Pakistan strongly. We must continue to do that, but we, we should also start to try to, con to move in ways uh, that show we cannot tolerate what their policy is because it hurts our national security interests, not only in Afghanistan, but in global terrorism and indeed in protecting the United States here from global terrorism. 
So uh, their, their uh, fueling of proxy war in Afghanistan and in the region through these uh, extremist network demands, a, demands tougher American steps. We must mix uh, disincentives with incentives. In the book, I list seven disincentive steps, measures that we can take that we can field in a graduated manner uh, to, to uh, move Pakistan away from this uh, destructive policy it's following, which no government in the world is safe from, no country in the world is safe from. from. No, uh, there are many countries, Muslim and non-Muslim, have, have, uh, have, have uh, suffered from the extremism coming out of, of, of Pakistan, the terrorism coming out of Pakistan. And we have to worry about the Arab Spring because there's these militant, radical, uh, Islamist organizations on the you know, fringes of the Salafist groupings, uh, which are already in touch with ISI and were in touch with them for 20 years or more. Uh, and ISI, if, it, if, it, if Pakistan's military continues on this path, can begin to cause great problems in the Arab Spring uh, for not only us, but for those that want to see a more pluralistic um, environment politically in these Arab countries. One of the, um, one of the Libyan leaders, a very strong, uh, prominent Libyan military leader, he spent time at, at Guantanamo Bay after we picked him up in, in, um, in Afghanistan, and he's, he's an extremist, a militant extremist, and you can imagine if he were heading Libya today, it might be worse than Gaddafi. So, and right now, uh, Pakistan is, is the epicenter of these sanctuaries and, and terrorism in the world. Uh, and uh, th there are groups there, radical Al-Qaeda-related groups, and I would say in the ISI too, that are probably, as we, as we meet here, uh, concocting ways to turn the Arab Spring in that direction. We must always remember, though, that our overall goal is to encourage Pakistan's generals to view the terrorist sanctuaries and these organizations they sustain not as strategic assets, but as strategic liabilities to Pakistan's interests. In the John Stewart show, uh, he asked me about this, and I said, well, you can't train snakes whom not to bite. And a lot of these groups and individuals that the Pakistani ISI have trained over the last several decades have started to bite the Pakistani state, and they're attacking military garrisons, including the naval base at Karachi a couple months ago. And they've even attacked the Rawalpindi Central Headquarters of the Pakistani Army. They had a suicide bomb go in there. So it is in uh, Pakistan's interest, too. Uh, and we have to keep working this. There's not one Muslim government in the world that supports these terrorist sanctuaries in Pakistan, which are exporting extremists around the world. So there's a lot of countries that think like us. We've got to move more geostrategically, building coalitions geographically to take advantage of that. Thirdly, this is the last geostrategic prong of our policy. We need to use our great diplomatic weight better to build regional and global coalitions to restore Afghanistan's classic buffer role at the center of the European landmass. That process started a couple weeks ago on November 2nd in Istanbul in a big way. And we were the major uh, diplomatic spark plug for that Istanbul conference. When all of uh, Afghanistan neighbors, including Pakistan, but also India, China, the United States, and, and other countries uh, were there, 
uh, and uh, discussed a neutral, a neutral Afghanistan at the center of Eurasia, and to build an, how to build an international consensus supportive of that. Uh, let me just read some excerpts from that statement from the con uh, at the at that conference, the final statement, which uh, announced support for the stability and peace in Afghanistan, as well as respect for Afghanistan's sovereignty, unity, and territorial integrity. Continued support for the government and people of Afghanistan, combating and eliminating terrorism in all its forms and manifestations and violent extremism, and preventing safe havens for terrorists and terrorism in the region. Refraining from the threat or use of force and not to allow one's territory to be used against another. So if you want to look that up on the internet, it's the October 2 Istanbul uh, Declaration. That, of course, is yet to be honored in practice. You can have announcements, you can have slogans, but, uh, and, and we just saw in, yet, uh, two days ago at the Bonn Conference, sorry, three days ago, uh, on uh, the 5th of uh, December, that Pakistan refused to attend, uh, giving as an excuse that uh, the U.S. Uh, military had uh, killed uh, 24 Pakistani soldiers on the on the frontier. Uh, but how that happened and, and why it happened is another long story, which I don't have to go into, but it's the explanations are in the book. But that conference was a major step forward, the uh, Istanbul conference, and re recreating the classic buffer role for uh, uh, Afghanistan and Central Asia and, and having mutual restraint by the outside powers, which Afghanistan, too, uh, will uh, help to organize. Uh, the end of the uh, declaration announces there'll be a follow-on conference uh, in June in Kabul. Uh, other meetings that are coming up are sure to discuss this area of geostrategic uh, overlay policy uh, uh, towards Afghanistan and the region, uh, coalition building, and one will be uh, the NATO summit in Chicago next May. Of course, uh, an election year, you're not, you won't be surprised to hear that the location of the next uh, NATO summit, there's 20-some 20, 20 nations in NATO. The last one was in Lisbon, but this next one will be in Chicago. Uh, and it will be a very, uh, very important meeting in May uh, on Afghanistan as well. And we'll be a major player in all of this conference uh, diplomacy. The key question, however, we will remain. Now, Afghanistan, whether they can do better in good governance, and, and, and running their own country and fighting corruption. Uh, that's going to be a big question. Uh, but Pakistan is the major question for the reason I said earlier, as long as those sanctuaries exist, no matter what, what we do or send to, and the West sends to, or the Indians send to uh, um, Afghanistan to resist, war will continue to tear Afghanistan. So uh, Pakistan has to execute a fundamental shift in its covert jihadist policy in the region and globally to see peace in Afghanistan. Many are hopeful it will, but today it is impossible to answer that question. Thank you for your patience. It's, it's been a long presentation. Thank you, Ambassador Thompson. And We're taping this for podcasting from our website, so we want to be able to get your questions. I'll start with you over here. Um, I was just wondering, I don't know if you went over this in the beginning, but just in terms of tactically, in order to 
achieve these long-term strategic goals? Did it matter whether whether we chose the um, counterinsurgency versus the counterterrorism approach, you know, the Biden plan versus what we actually went with, um, or or did you know or or well, I guess did we choose the right? Did the surge matter? Did it in terms of reaching these these sort of long-term geostrategic goals? Did it help? I think I, my own opinion is overall it, it helped, especially in the South, uh, and it showed Afghans that, uh, as Hillary Clinton said, uh, Secretary Clinton said. Uh, on December 5th and beyond, we're with you in the long run, too. I mean, we're here to stay. We're going to help you until this is resolved. And the Germans and others said the same thing, tried to reassure the Afghans. Uh, so uh, I think it was a mistake to send that many troops. Uh, but uh, overall, it, it helped uh, because we made progress. Kayum could talk about that better than I could in the South. Um, do you agree with that? So. Uh, uh, it's what I would have hoped, and I say in the book, and is that um, you want to speak? Okay, you want to speak? Some more? I can say a word. Okay. Yes. Uh, what if I could just finish on this? So that from the beginning, from 2002, I was fighting out this on the front lines to make sure that we should have taken a geostrategic approach from the beginning, and the military and the uh, intelligence uh, sort of prongs of our policy, instruments of our policy. Uh, should have been a part of a whole, a broader geostrategic approach. And the coin and, and the counterinsurgency, counterterrorism approaches are both um, formulated mostly by our military and our intelligence agencies, and they have the lead. And you get too far down into the woods. In my judgment, it's never a question of either or. You know, there's this great uh, debate about Biden's counterterrorism or Petraeus's counterinsurgency. I think they're both important. I think that uh, counterinsurgency had the lead, but counterterrorism was always part of it. Uh, we've, we, we have some 10,000 troops now in Afghanistan operating on counter, in, along counterterrorist lines. And the uh, SEALs that took out bin Laden, that was counterterrorism. And they operated from bases in, in Afghanistan, into Pakistan. So both are important, including uh, as we do the drawdown, uh, we have to have a mixture. It's not going to be one or the other, but the counterterrorist side definitely will uh, remain. It'll get smaller, too, relatively speaking. But the counterinsurgency side will diminish, and a lot of that will be turned over to the Afghan, Afghans. Did you want to comment, Yes. Uh, I believe that one of the most important uh, policy shift uh, with the surge uh, going to Afghanistan uh, was that uh, particularly in the four provinces, the southern provinces, Kandahar, Urozgan, Zabul, and the Helmand province, <coughs> uh, have achieved the best security uh, for the population in the last 10 years. And, uh, and the basic reason was that with the troops increase, uh, it really, uh, the troops went uh, after uh, demolishing the infrastructure that the Taliban have built in the districts around uh, the city uh, capital uh, in all four provinces. And they have denied them the space. Uh, for example, the year before last, uh, well, no, two years ago, the, in the fighting season, there was a good possibility that in each district you will see 500, 600 to 1,000 Taliban fighting. 
to close on the city and and commerce was disrupted and agriculture was disrupted and all these things and this year uh, for example in the summer uh, there was hardly uh, a group of five talibans that could get together uh, to, to to fight back and uh, and according to the success of the surge uh, and the security in the districts um, of Kandahar, Zabul, and uh, Uruzgan, and, uh, and Helmand, <coughs> uh, Taliban's uh, and, and from Pakistan have changed their tactics. That's why in the last two years you have seen a lot of uh, assassination of the tribal leaders, the government workers, and not because they were unable to fight anymore. And uh, so, so it was uh, it was a very uh, much of a success in the population in Afghanistan. Noticed that a lot. Thanks. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I was uh, interested in um, um, the neighbor Iran. And that, uh, in my, don't think we should overlook that. And I wonder uh, if you would comment on the effect, uh, or the relationship, or the concerns, uh, the, the strategy uh, with respect to Afghanistan, but also uh, perhaps in its role as a buffer, and then the to the west of Iran and its. Uh, its uh, enemies, as I see it. Uh, if you can translate that for yourself, I'm trying to get, make a point here. I think I got it. Um, the Iranian foreign minister came, came to the uh, December 5th conference uh, in Bonn, and his main point was they want for, uh, foreign troops to leave Afghanistan, of course, because on one side you have Iraq, and on the other side, from their strategic point of view, in Afghanistan, they're kind of surrounded, which uh, we don't mind that much. Uh, that, you know, think that. Um, but they have a strong national interest in not seeing the Taliban come back to power. You just saw a radical Taliban, this, this, this organization in Pakistan, which is close to the Taliban and al-Qaeda, uh, kill Sexy Shia in, in a very prominent uh, shrine in Kabul. And simultaneously that day, another attack took place up in Mazar Sharif uh, against the shrine. So uh, these, uh, this, this radical ideology is Sunni, um, ex Sunni extremism uh, is anti-Shia. It's also anti-Sufi. During the Taliban period, Taliban whole battalions went into Central Highlands, which is heavily Hazara Shia, and just massacred whole villages. So um, uh, this is a break on any Iranian cooperation with Pakistan, although the Iranians operate in such a way that they'll deal with anybody for a short time on anything, and, and never have, uh, you know, never have an alliance with anybody. Uh, I saw this. I was U.S. ambassador in Armenia, and the Iranians sought a good relationship with Armenia against Muslim Azerbaijan for various uh, strategic reasons too. So the Iranians are causing problems in Afghanistan, and they're 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 also killing. Uh, American troops, um, but
But uh, along the periphery, uh, I'm not excusing this, I'm just saying this is their tactic, near their borders, uh, Iranian-Afghan uh, borders, like we have a, a, an air base there with a lot of air, air power and Shindan near the uh, Iranian border. So uh, they will have occasional attacks against on, on American targets. But basically, they don't want to see Afghanistan go back into the uh, Taliban bucket where uh, they and their Shia co-religionists in, in Afghanistan uh, will suffer mightily. And that's why their foreign minister went to the Istanbul conference. And, and the Iranians will probably participate in the Istanbul process towards reaching an uh, international and regional agreement on mutual restraint and recognizing Afghan territorial integrity and neutrality. Pakistan is not there yet. Uh, do you think the Pakistanis knew Osama bin Laden was living in their country? Uh, yes, I said that in the 2006 uh, Frontline interview. I, uh, they asked me that, uh, Martin Smith, the commentator, and, and I said they, they, the Pakistani military and ISI know exactly where he is. And read chapter, you bought the book, John, you made the mistake of buying the book. Uh, read chapter 22. Uh, I call three great escapes when the, the Taliban al-Qaeda escaped into Pakistan back to the sanctuaries. And when Osama bin Laden, his wives and children, and hundreds and hundreds of his followers came out of Tora Bora and stepped into uh, Pakistan, and his wives were on horses, maybe Osama bin Laden, he liked to ride a ho white horse when he was in the mountains, and white Corella when he was driving a car, Corella. And anyway, when they, that long procession came into Pakistan, uh, we asked the Pakistani military, this is America's most wanted man, where is he? And the Pakistani military and ISI said, we don't know where he went. Of course they know, Craig Karp once told me, ISI knows what's going on in every square foot on both sides of the border of the frontier. Of course they knew, and they uh, then sheltered him in that safe haven. Remember that? I wanted to uh, follow up on your, uh, if I didn't misunderstand you, you used, you talked about the containment strategy that came out of, the, I think, the 1947, the, the long telegram uh, from uh, Canaan, from Moscow, and so forth. Uh, it seems like, I'm not sure if I understand that analogy, because there we had the Axis powers were fully defeated, and we had one clear enemy and the world has become much more factionalized and fractionalized since then. And so certainly there is no doubt that Pakistan is, is a severe impediment to a stable Afghanistan. But the gentleman up here just asked about Iran, and, I'm, and you mentioned uh, the uh, Arab Spring, and there's a whole series of other things going on in that area. And uh, we've got Turkey uh, perhaps as a force that's might begin to stabilize the area as they rise. But I, I just wondered what, what you thought the analogies, to, to extend that analogy, you know, as opposed to having one clear uh, opponent and one ideological opponent, um, that it being the Soviet Union, um, with all these different, even different ideologies within what, what we Americans tend to call, you know, one group which would be the, the Muslim religion. It's clearly not one entity. You just laid that out. So I just wondered how, if we're looking globally 
or I don't know if you're talking strategically in South Asia or strategically more, more right. larger area. Yeah, in the book I describe this more. I describe well. I say, as I mentioned in my remarks, that that uh, it would not be hard to build a coalition like we did in the Cold War, including with the Chinese, uh, to contain the, in this case, the threat coming out of of Pakistan. And and if if the Taliban spread into Afghanistan, it would be even a greater threat. And we have to move now. But it would be very easy for coalition building with Muslim and non-Muslim countries. Russia does not, they're already getting shaky at the Taliban coming towards the Amudari, and Putin said the other day, just even while he's attacking the United States, saying we have to cooperate with you on Afghanistan. China wants to see a stable Afghanistan to, to rope in resources. It's, it's made the largest investment in Afghan history in a $3 billion copper mine, and it's looking for resources all over the world. Afghanistan has trillions in resources, which uh, we and others have found. It's, it's going to be the Saudi Arabia of lithium. It's got the largest lithium deposits in the world. And of course, the iron ore deposits in the Hazarajat are huge. Uh, and, and China does not want to see the Taliban come back because they have their Muslim extremist problem in Xinjiang province in the west bordering Afghanistan. So, but they do have, we, I don't want to understate, they do have a strong geostrategic tie with, with uh, Pakistan that they want to keep vis-a-vis -vis India. But overall, and, and again, I can't go into detail, but I have about six points on building, how we can build a coalition like we did in the Cold War to contain the terrorism and put pressure on, on Pakistan, contain the terrorism coming out of uh, Pakistan. And at the same time, as I also emphasize, we have to continue to engage Pakistan to the extent we can, even as we uh, uh, follow a tougher policy to ma make them know this is unacceptable because it's endangering our national security here as well as in Afghanistan and in the region and globally. So as you see at that um, Istanbul conference declaration, you might pull it up on the internet, it's obviously pointed at Pakistan when it talks about eliminating safe havens and terrorist uh, groups, et cetera. And I think my personal view is that's one reason why the Pakistani foreign minister did not show up at Bonn a, a couple days ago, because he just th he, he saw that you know they're isolated already and they're going to take hits. Sir, we have a question. Yeah, sure. On the West, that's the East, or on the West, it's the East. Yeah. 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 yeah, the I think it will, uh, except it. There will be less pressure on Iran that we could use from our bases in Afghanistan. There's no question about it. But um, we will still continue to have uh, at least 10,000 troops in Afghanistan for training and other purposes. And they will have to have places to stay, if you know what I mean. Um, uh, I have a yeah. <clears throat> Ambassador Townsend, can, is this? coming through. Um, I appreciate the wealth of knowledge and the thickness of your book and your um, uh, excellent efforts to, to put forth some summary and strong points this evening. I wanted to go back to your references um, to Afghanistan in the 90s and in particular ask you um, about the relationship that uh, might have existed between bin Laden, bin Laden and Pakistan in the 90s. As you know, 
9-11 wasn't the first. There were the embassy bombings. There was Cobar Towers. And there was the USS Cole, just to name the top three, uh, done by bin Laden and Al-Qaeda in the 90s. Kind of, yeah, so I'm curious um, uh, what you see was his relationship with Pakistan during that time frame. Can I ask you a brief question? Uh, have you read uh, Unholy Alliance chapter of the book? Oh, okay. Uh, there's a chapter in the book, it's on Holy Alliance, where I, I discuss this in my, I don't go in, into a, um, you know, reach a conclusion that uh, Pakistan's military intelligence agency knew about one of those many attacks that were state, which were, uh, what, uh, planned, organized, and uh, carried out from uh, Al-Qaeda bases in Afghanistan at the time. But I then, in this part of that chapter, go into the various bases that these were training bases of jihadists that were operating internationally, run by ISI and uh, Osama bin Laden's al-Qaeda next to each other. Osama bin Laden had two Arab brigades which joined the ISI-planned offensive against Ahmed Shah Massoud in the north every year. He was the only... Um, commanders with a large military force still in Afghanistan fighting the Taliban, a point that um, Qayyum's father, the famous Abdullahad Karzai, made once. And up there in the north, every year Pakistan would bring in thousands of fighters from uh, Pakistan, madrasa students, but also frontier corps battalions that were in, it's a, it's a paramilitary group that operates in the, in the frontier. Uh, they brought in specialists, uh, military specialists in the Pakistani army and artillery and intelligence and other communications, other sophisticated areas. And generals uh, up from Pakistan inside Afghanistan, they were headquartered in Kunduz. They planned all these attacks. And then they lined up the Taliban, who were always just a horde. I mean, they had no military discipline to speak of as a regular army does. And they were in one place in the Madrasa students, that tens of thousands of them from Pakistan were in another place. And then uh, Osama bin Laden and other Arabs uh, were in the third part of the offensive and they'd send them forward. And uh, Massoud was pushed back because he didn't have that many troops or supplies. We weren't helping him. But he still, um, he still held out. So the Pakistani military and ISI worked very closely with Al-Qaeda and uh, Osama bin Laden in these attacks. And the respective headquarters of the ISI were in Kandahar with Mullah Omar, who had his headquarters there. And Osama bin Laden had his headquarters in, in Kandahar. And I imagine at a tea party sometime, they might have compared notes. I'm just joking. But their proximity in all of these areas, we can't but conclude. Or I put it in the book. It's hard to conceive that... Some Pakistani ISI officers did not hear of any of these uh, al-Qaeda plans to attack the United States. But I have no smoking gun. Steve Cole and his ghost wars goes somewhat in this direction. He doesn't go as far as I do. But I do um, describe as much as I can and reach inclusion as much as I can and answer your question in that Unholy Alliance chapter. Let's just take one more question so we can uh, allow time for... Book, set, book sales and book signing. Uh, how many different uh, entities are there, tribes or otherwise, in Afghanistan that need to be part of the solution? And what kind of nation-building issues, if you will, 
bring will bring those folks together what will bring them together i think will be the end of uh, pakistani battering of the afghan state from these sanctuaries inside afghanistan and so the afghans get a chance to uh work together uh the book has a uh, a chart and a map of uh the major groups about six of them uh ethnic and um tri uh, tribal but then you have uh tribal confederations and you have sub subtribal you know subtribal units and you go down to the clan and the family and i have a chapter tribe and mosque where it's it's you know it's hard to describe all of this now where i i, I try to explain this thoroughly but let me ask uh, if you want to add to this kayum you want to come up here because it's the last question can, can kayum say he's of the papasai tribe <laughs> Thank you. I think the best evidence that we have uh, to date was the uh, lawyer jirga that was held in Kabul uh, in November, from November 25th to 28th. Uh, 2,100 uh, selected members from all tribes of Afghanistan, from every corner of Afghanistan, showed up uh, in the lawyer jirga. Uh, to advise the government uh, about the strategic partnership between the United States and uh, in America. Uh, out of the 2,100, it is said that 99.9% of the people voted uh, that because of the activities of Pakistan, that they would like to have the United States strategic partnership, meaning that the United States will establish five bases in Afghanistan with certain conditions intact. <clears throat> Now, it is hardly, hardly uh, believable that, uh, that, that if the people are not united, that they will pass such a resolution. Uh, Afghanistan is uh, uneducated people, poor people. Uh, but they are extraordinarily pragmatic, moderate. And, and I think that there is no other ev evidence in the his history of Afghanistan that uh, people have declared uh, that they at this time are unable to defend the territorial integrity of Afghanistan. And thus they asked uh, the United States of America to help in that regard until Afghanistan is ready with their own forces to take uh, that action. So that to me showed uh, enormous unity. Um, uh, I believe uh, that we don't have another evidence as such that, uh, that people in their political world outlook are very united. And, uh, and so in that regard, I think that there is a tribal and ethnic unity in Afghanistan right now. Uh, you might say that uh, it is out of necessity and the lack of security, but people uh, do get united when they're fearful of the enemies or the neighbors. So, so that's what I think, that, that right now we have a great uh, unity, national unity in Afghanistan. Thank you. Mm -hmm. <laughs>